0: Well, good morning. Now that Christmas is over, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. (laughs) Finally, it's here. Like many of you, our family has some wonderful Christmas traditions. For us, one of our favorites is the nativity set that my kids talked me into buying several years ago. They really wanted to have Jesus, Mary, and Joseph in front of the house. So where do you go when you need the Holy Family? You go to Menards, of course. And yes, I did find them. They were illuminated and my kids were happy. The next year, I went back to Menards the week after Christmas, picked up a donkey, a sheep, a cow, saved big money. The following year, I struck pure gold. The wise men were on sale. (laughs) And I could not resist. So if you were to drive by my house tonight, this is what you would see. Now, sharp-eyed observers will notice something's missing. Uh, This is what is missing right here. This guy. Last year, as you recall, our... Christmas season was not as mild, and so at the end of Christmas, the Holy Family was encased in ice. Now, a lot of guys would boil some water, pour it over the electrical cord, and voila, out they come. Not this guy. Why miss an opportunity to use an ice pick? Well, this is the reason why you might Not want to use the ice pick. Uh, This is what happened when I tried to take him out. He didn't quite make it. So this year I thought, you know what, I'm going to fix the wise man before I put him back up. I had 11 months to do that. (laughs) I didn't do it. (laughs) And so I put the other two up and I thought, well, I'll get to it. He's going he's gonna to make it. Well, here he is. He never made it. I got distracted. I got interrupted. I got busy. And that's what happens, isn't it? But it got me to thinking, why in the world did I think it was okay to put up the nativity set with only two-thirds of the wise men? I never would have done that with two-thirds of the Holy Family, right? Right? I might have missed a cow or a sheep, uh, but why just two out of the three? Why was that okay? Well, it's okay because the nativity scene is all about the baby, right? It's all about the baby. Just like the baptisms we just watched. Carrie was just the holder. The parents, they're off to the side. The band, you... You might as not even, well, if have even been here. No one is paying attention to you, right? It's all about the baby, and it should be. We love our baby Jesus. The Christ child is the center of attention. And what's there not to love about baby Jesus? As noted theologian and race car driver Ricky Bobby so famously prayed in the classic film Talladega Nights, Tiny, eight-pound, six-ounce, newborn infant Jesus in his golden fleece diapers with his little fat, balled-up fists. Don't even know a word yet. So cuddly, but still so omnipotent. That's great theology. (laughs) I'm not going to recommend the movie, but... The baby is the star of the nativity. But here's the thing. Jesus may be the star of the show, but he doesn't want the spotlight all to himself. He wants to share it. He invites others into the scene shepherds, wise men, livestock, and guess what? Even us. We are invited into the nativity. If we want the birth of Jesus to be anything more than, at best, a historical event that happened 2,000 years ago, or at worst, a feel-good myth that's a sideshow to the real star of the show, the big guy in the red suit, if we want Christmas to be anything more than that, then we have to find our own place in the story. Because the nativity scene was never meant to be a private affair. If it was, how do you explain the prophets who foretold it for centuries? Why else would the heavenly hosts sing their praises? Why else would the wise men have had a star to guide them to the scene? Remember the angels' words to the shepherds. I know you do. We know them by heart. I bring you good news of great joy for whom? For all the people. All the people. And the good news is this. A Savior is born, who is Christ, the Messiah. This is the last of our Advent uh, sermon series, The Fullness of Christmas. And if you haven't guessed, the focus is on the good news today. And God knows our world could use some good news today. Even though Advent is past, even though we celebrated Christmas six days ago, it's not too late to move on from the story. You're already seeing Christmas trees at the curb, ready to go out with the trash. But the Christian church has long recognized 12 days of Christmas, not just through an annoying and repetitive song, but through traditions. The 12 days represent The time between the birth of Jesus and the arrival of the Magi. Now, Magi is the plural form of a Latin word that means Persian priest or wise man. The Magi were probably wealthy, they were probably smart, well educated, but you know what else they were? They were seekers, they were looking for the truth, and that's what attracted them to the manger. They thought this was the truth. So the 12 days after Christmas, January 6th, that's when we celebrate Epiphany. Epiphany is the time when the real meaning of Christ's birth began to take hold. And that's symbolized by the Magi who show up with their gifts. But it took them a while. The truth is they probably were not in the manger. It's much more likely that it took them several months, maybe even a couple years to get there. Their gifts might have been brought to the Holy Family, not in the manger, but while the family were refugees in Egypt. But their role is critical. They make the final cut for the nativity scene because they were seekers, they heard the good news of the birth, and they chose to do something about it. To respond. And we're invited to do the same. But let's be honest. If we had our choice of what roles to play in the scene, many of us would rather play the lead role, the Messiah, than we would the supporting role, the Magi. Love this cartoon. Right now, I'm his apostle, the buddy says to his friend, but my dream is to someday be my own Messiah. Right? Doesn't that sound better? We have a term for this. We call it the Messiah complex. We reserve it for crazy people, right? They think they're Jesus or people who are so power hungry they need to be in control. We laugh about it. But when we do that, we let ourselves off the hook because I think each one of us has a little bit of Messiah complex within us. We don't have to be crazy to want to be in control of our own lives. Lutheran pastor and author Peter Marty writes this, our need, one need not be a person suffering grandiose delusions in order to play God. As it turns out, any one of us is capable of that distortion. Some days, we ought to pity God for having to try to wrestle any humility out of us. It's hard to be humble, isn't it? The more comfortable we get with our financial security, the more competent we get in our career, the more popular we get at school, the more confident we've become in our own charm or ingenuity, all of that makes us think that we're in control, that we're calling the shots. We begin to think maybe we are omnipotent or invulnerable. But guess what? We're not. Only God is. So just how does God wrestle any humility out of us? God does it by pointing us to the Messiah because Jesus is the embodiment of humility. Instead of trying to be our own Messiah, God wants us to follow the example of the real Messiah because when we do that, we end up not chasing power or authority or control, but humility. Of course, following the example of Christ is not easy and never has been. The great Roman Caesar, Octavian Augustus, established the city of Philippi as a Roman colony after winning a battle over the city in the year 42 BC. The Roman Empire had ushered in a new era of world peace and security and justice. It was called the Pax Romana, the Roman Peace. But the Roman peace, just like the establishment of the city of Philippi, was not brought about peacefully. It was brought about through violence and war, and it was maintained by sheer power and subjugation. The good news of Roman peace was kept by the not-so-good news of Roman power. The Apostle Paul had established a church in the city of Philippi, and he was writing to them from prison to encourage them and to support them in their efforts to follow the example of the Messiah. They were living under constant threat from the power of Rome, and the believers thought maybe the only chance we have to survive is through power. They were having a hard time keeping their faith in Jesus. So Paul reminds them that the real good news is found not by seeking power, but by seeking humility. That was a countercultural message then, just as it is today. So Paul writes a letter to encourage the church to stand firm by following the example of Jesus. Second chapter, Philippians. You can find it on the screen. You can turn to your pew Bible, Philippians chapter 2, page 1672. Paul writes this, "'Do nothing out of selfish ambition.'" or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, rather he made himself nothing. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul says that even though Jesus was equal to God, he made himself nothing. That, folks, is the essence of humility. Author and pastor Rick Warren says, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's easier said than done, right? Humility is hard. We are hardwired to think of ourselves, to act in our own best interest, to watch out for ourselves. But the more we empty ourselves, God says, the more we can be filled with good news. That takes time. It takes discipline. It takes practice. It's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing process of prayer and confession and time spent in God's word. And it's constantly filled with distractions and interruptions. At the end of every worship service, we are encouraged to look out the window and to be reminded that what we do in here is not to stay here, it's to go outside. Well, in my former life, I was the mission pastor here, and I remember when this room was built. We used to worship in the great room. That was the sanctuary. And it was more traditional. It had windows facing out this way. They weren't the big, beautiful windows like this. And I remember the first few services that were held in this room. The pastors and their families used to sit over here, as many of us still do. And one of the pastors noticed that her teenage son was paying far more attention to the sermons in the new sanctuary. And she was thrilled. So after a few weeks, she came up to him and said, I, I notice you're following the sermons. You really are tracking now. And he said, I- actually, no, I'm not. I'm-, I'm counting the number of SUVs that go on Highway 100. <laughs> Distractions. Distractions. You look outside, and that's the danger. You can get distracted from your purpose. We have great intentions, but then the world kind of gets in the way. Sometimes it touches some stuff going on inside of us that we'd rather not deal with. When I was the mission pastor here, one of the trips I got to lead was a small group. We went to India. And through a fluke of scheduling, the rest of the team flew home and I had 15 hours by myself in New Delhi. What do you do in New Delhi when you've got 15 hours to kill? You can hang out in your hotel room and watch Bollywood movies. I chose not to. I hired a driver. I wanted to see the city. So to my door at the hotel came Raju. He was a young man. He was quiet. He was shy. He was reserved. But he started taking me around to visit uh, the sites. We went to the Red Fort. We went to the Gandhi Museum. We got out and rode a rickshaw together. That was a trip. And each time we went somewhere, I invited him to come along, and I paid a few extra rupees, and we got to chatting. And it was clear to me, most people in the back of Raju's cab didn't talk to him. In fact, most people in the back of his cab didn't even notice him. So it took him a while, but he began to open up to me. And he shared with me that he was 21 years old. His father had died a few years earlier. He had moved from his small village to the big city. And he was now the main breadwinner for the entire family. He'd work 18 hours a day. He'd go back to his flat. He'd sleep. He'd get up the next morning and he'd do it again. Seven days a week. That was his life. And it soon became clear to me, Raju didn't spend any time outside of his cab or his flat. He didn't have any friends in a city of 9 million people. So the more we traveled, the more I got to talk. We passed a church at one point, and I mentioned it to him, asked him if he'd ever been inside. He said, oh, no, 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 I'm a Hindu. I I have never been there. And at that point, I thought this was the appropriate time for me to share that I was a Christian, And we began talking a little bit about faith. Well, the afternoon ended and we agreed that he would come back after dinner, pick me up and take me to the airport so I could catch my flight home. And I thought that trip is going to be the perfect time for me to take our conversation to its natural conclusion. And I'll share with Raju the good news about Jesus Christ. So sure enough, he came to the hotel, he picked me up. But a funny thing happened on the way from the hotel to the airport. I got distracted. It was a Friday night in New Delhi. I didn't know a soul in the city and I realized no one else I knew knew what I was doing, knew where I was supposed to be when. And it occurred to me I had more Belongings in my luggage and more money in my wallet than Raju would make in a couple of years of work. And I started thinking about my safe, secure life back home, my wife and two small kids, and how much I missed them. And I started worrying. What if this guy takes me off who knows where and robs me and beats me up and leaves me. No one would know. This was before Uber. It was before smartphones. I didn't recognize any sights. I didn't see any signs going to the airport. And you know what I did on that trip to the airport? I kept my mouth shut. I was scared. Sure enough, a few minutes later, we drove up to the airport right on time. Raju had done his job He opened the door for me, let me out, got my luggage, took my fare and my small tip. And I'll never forget what he said to me as he looked me straight in the eye. He said, sir, I am missing you already. And I realized I'd blown it. (laughs) I'd blown it. I'd been distracted. The fears had gotten to me. A chance to share the good news with someone whose life desperately needed to hear it. Folks, you don't have to go to the other side of the world to have those opportunities. We all have them in our schools, in our workplaces, in our homes, in our neighborhoods. But we get distracted, don't we? We wonder, what are people going to think of us? Am I going to offend them? Am I going to do it wrong? Am I going to be embarrassed? And so we don't do anything. The good news that we have to share, it doesn't have to be shared perfectly. It just has to be from the heart. I don't know what your years looked like. We've all had our good news and our bad, our joys and our sorrows. But on this day, as we look back, I invite us all to claim good news upon our lives. And then to take it outside and to share it. You know where this guy is going to be tonight? (laughs) He's going to be back where he belongs, at the manger. Broken cord at all. Because I realized, you don't have to be fixed (laughs) to have a spot in the story. You don't have to be perfect. In fact, none of us ever will be. Jesus uses us And that's good news any day of the year. Amen.